today's topic is the Holy Brothers, Rabbi Elimelech and Rabbi Zusha. And there are different opinions about who to name first because there are different opinions about who was actually older. Um, but these are two um, 18th century tzaddikim um, that are a third generation from the Baal Shem Tov. So last week we spoke about the Baal Shem Tov. I'm going to move you a little bit more up front because I'm mostly talking to you. So I might as well move you here. So uh, last week we talked about the Baal Shem Tov. The following Hasidic leader after the Baal Shem Tov is the Maggid of Mezrich. And the Maggid of Mezrich had uh, a huge amount of followers and he created Rebbes. The, 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 the Mezritcher Maggid created Rebbes, so many, many of his followers spread throughout Europe and became Rebbes and had their own communities and so on. Just give me a second, Rabbi Solish. I think we're gonna go like till about nine, nine, 10. Yeah, yeah? yeah. good, you'll be here? Yeah, very good, very good, okay. So, the Maggid of Mizrich needed to be discovered by certain people. There was, it was a period of a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, conflict and a lot of uh, resistance against the Hasidic movement because it was very new, it was very different, it was a very different way of serving Hashem. Um, so just to give you an idea, before the Baal Shem Tov, the way of serving Hashem was with, mostly with fear and and fear, fear of punishment, um, a lot of um, rejection of the body, a lot of sigufim, which are like flagellations, like um, torments for the body, in, fighting against the body in order to allow the soul to shine. The Baal Shem Tov changed that completely. The Baal Shem Tov said, we are not fighting against the body, we are working with the body to elevate it. Therefore, um, no fasting unless you are extremely strong and healthy and fasting doesn't bother you at all and in, in no self-torment and any of those things we need to serve Hashem with joy we need to serve Hashem with a pure heart and with joy and with earn, earnestly and and that's it so the Balshemto changed that and the, this this Balshemto and his students would spend many many hours in in prayer which was the opposite of what everybody else was doing in that generation. You know, the sages in the time of the Baal Shem Tov were very, very separated from the masses. So there was the sages and the masses, and they even, they even had separate houses of worship. They even had separate shuls to go daven. So, so the schism was huge. And the Baal Shem Tov said, Hashem loves the simple people. And we need to include them. We need to embrace them. Um, but the Baal Shem Tov and the Mezritcher Maggid, um, their work was very, very much involved with teaching people to use their heart in the service of Hashem. The Baal Shem Tov put a lot of emphasis on the words Rahmana Libabai, which means the merciful one. Hashem loves the heart, he wants the heart, and so on. And so prayer was centralized. And Many of the intellectual luminaries of the time of the Maggid that later became the Hasidic masters of the next generation, 
they were looking, they were looking for guidance. They were looking for, for a leader and they said, okay, there are two choices. There is Vilna and there is Mezrich. In Vilna, they teach how to learn Torah. In Mezrich, they teach how to, how to dive and how to pray. So a lot of people who were seeking, trying to learn how to serve Hashem with your heart ended up in Mezrich with the Maggid. And so our dear brothers, the, the holy brothers as they are called, Rebbe Limelech of Lizinsk and Reb Zusha of Anipoli, the holy brothers, they ended up um, not at the same time, but first Reb Zusha and then Rebbe Limelech, they ended up at the place of the Mezricher Maggid, at the Maggid. Um, the origin of these two brothers. Could you spell their names, the two brothers? In Hebrew, I could. Like just in English, some kind of way. It doesn't really matter. Okay. So, Reb Elimelech, that's E L I M E L E C H. Elimelech. Reb Elimelech of Lizinsk. I don't know how to spell Lizinsk. <laughs> Of which city? Flezinsk? Lezinsk. 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 yeah. And all of these places in Europe, you'll find the names written in Hebrew and pronounced in different ways. So there's going to be, there is Lezinsk, there is Lezinsk, there is, you know, different versions of what was it really called. So we have Revelimelech of Lezinsk. So eventually he became a Rebbe after the Magid. Um, Revelimelech was, was a disciple of the Magid. He became a rebbe in Lizinsk, and he had a huge following in Lizinsk, and that's Rebbe Limelech. His brother, and there is so much conflicting information about who was older and who their parents were and how they were born, and there is a lot of conflicting information, but the main things we got straight. So his brother, Rev Zusha, Zusha is um, Z-U-S-H-A, Zusha. And there is, even in Hebrew, there is like five different spellings of the name Zusha. His, his full name is Meshulam Zusha. And it could also be spelled Zusil. And okay. it be connected to this, which is sweet in Yiddish. So his name is Rav Meshulam Zusil or Zusha or Zushal and you know, all of those versions of his name. He's usually known as Rev Zusha, and he ended up in Anipoli. And that is where actually the Magid was buried at the end of his life. The Magid also ended up in Anipoli, and they're both buried um, uh, ne next to each other in the, in the same place. So if you go on the trip to visit, to visit the Tzadikim, the Hasidic masses in Europe, Anipoli is a big stop because you know that, that that's their burial place. Anyways, the story of these two brothers, I have found two completely opposite and different stories about how their parents merited to have these incredible children who were both in huge, huge, huge luminaries of Torah and great Hasidic masters. One story is about the parents being very poor. The other story is about the parents being very wealthy. And it might be that it's two stories of two different brothers, or two different sets of brothers who were tzaddikim. And so the stories got confused. I don't know. I'm sure that the two stories are true, but there might be some misinformation about who the sons actually are.
So in the story in which the parents were very, very poor, the father was a water carrier and both he and his wife were poor and unlearned. And one day the Baal Shem Tov came to their city and he spoke about how much Hashem loves the people who work and earn a living with their personal effort and the work of their hands. So he came home and talked to his wife about it. And, and um, she was very happy to hear this because he happened to be a water carrier. And um, they had two sons and their sons were undergifted. So their sons were basically uh, challenged in terms of ac academics. So the, the kids were going to school, but they were not learning much. So the parents decided that they are going to dive into Hashem every day, asking that their children should be smarter and they should be able to learn something. And they would say to him, now this man can ba could barely read the father and his wife couldn't read at all, but he would read uh, with difficulty. He would read the words of the Hilim and his wife would repeat the words after him. And so it happened that he was bringing water, selling water to all, to half of the houses in the, in the town. And there was another Jewish water carrier who was bringing water to the other half of the homes. Now in that town, there were two very wealthy families and there were two shoals. Our hero was bringing water to the two wealthy families who paid double. And his competitor who was bringing water to the other half of the homes was bringing water to the two shoals that paid half. So one day he and his wife thought, maybe it would be a great merit for us if we switch and instead of bringing water to the two wealthy families, I'll bring water to the two shoals and I will ask the other water carrier if he wants to switch. And this switch, we will make in the merit of our sons that they should be able to learn Torah. So he went to the other water carrier, he offered the switch, the other water carrier was thrilled because he now was making four times the money for those two locations. And the switch happened and uh, nobody paid much attention to it except for the water carriers themselves. One of them was making much more money. The other one was confident that this merit would assist his sons to learn Torah. And so it was. The two boys started to be much more successful in their learning of Torah. And they started to be able to read better and learn Chumash and so on. And they made great progress. The story goes that one day they were so poor that they did not have meat or chicken or fish for Shabbos. They just had vegetables and bread. And one day when he was getting water from the river to bring to the town, a fish jumped into his bucket. And he said, he brought it home and he said to his wife, guess what, amazing, we got fish for Shabbat. And she said, wonderful. And he went back to finish his work. And when he came home, his wife was very sad. So he asked her for the reason for her sadness. And she said, I don't wanna tell you. And he said, but just a minute, we've been married all these years. You always tell me everything. Why don't you wanna tell me this time? And she confessed, she said, I am afraid that if I tell you, you will change and you will not be the one that I am used to, my, my husband. And he said, what are you talking about? Nothing's going to change. And she said, do you promise me that no matter what happens, you will continue being a water carrier and doing what the Baal Shem Tov said, this is what Hashem likes, people who work with the toil of their hands. And he said, well, yes, of course, why would I change? Okay, then I'll show you, she said. And she 
showed him that inside a piece of cloth, she had wrapped something up and she, she said, I found this inside the fish. And it was a very large precious stone. And he said, okay, no worries. We'll give it back to the righteous owner. I'm gonna go right now to the rabbi's house and ask him, how do I return it? So he ran to the rabbi's house and he asked the rabbi and the rabbi said, well, where was it found? And the man said, inside a fish that I pulled out of the river. And the rabbi said, well, uh, lucky you, it's yours to keep. Now you will be wealthy. You won't need to be a warrior anymore. Oh no, he said, name was Rebeliezer Lipa. He went back home and he told his wife, look, I'll tell you what the rabbi said, we can't return it because it's not possible to know who it belongs to. And it might have belonged to somebody 200 years ago and fallen in the river until this fish swallowed it. So I'll tell you what, since you want me to continue and I want to continue working as a water carrier, we will sell the precious stone, but we will not benefit from this money. We will, we will be giving out this money to Tzedakah. Every week on Thursday, we will distribute money to Tzedakah to all the destitute people in our town. And there was no shortage of food people. And that way they will have what they need for Shabbat. Great idea. They both agreed and they were very happy again. And so for many years, because this stone was worth a lot of money, for many years, they used their wealth to feed the poor every single week until the money was running out. And on another day, um, our hero, Rebel Yezer, Lipa goes to the river, he takes off his shoes to go into the river if he had shoes, and he feels a pebble between his toes. So he bends down to take the pebble that's in between his toes, and the pebble is very shiny. And he takes it out and he looks, and it is not a pebble. It is a gold coin. So he looks in the water and the place where this gold coin came from, and there is a whole bunch of gold coins scattered that have fallen out of a treasure box straight out of the movies. And he pulls out the treasure box full of gold coins and he brings it home and his wife starts to cry again. Oh no, why is Hashem testing us again? Didn't we pass the test already one time? Why do we have to be tested a second time? So her husband comforts her and says, don't cry, my dear. We passed the first test. We will pass the second test. We will also use this money to feed the poor every week. And so they did. And as these years were unfolding, as time was unfolding, the two boys grew up and became geniuses in Torah and became the great, great holy brothers, Rebeli Melech and Reb Zusha. That is one story. The other story is the opposite, that the parents were extremely wealthy and they were challenged by having some guests that came to the house who were, one of them was had a very serious contagious disease and they welcomed him anyways and then the man thanked them and uh, they were sure that they were going to catch what he had but anyways when he was leaving he blessed them and he said to the hostess whose name was Meryl he said to her I bless you that you will have sons like me and he was was stricken with a terrible skin disease that disfigured his whole body. So she thought, oh, what kind of blessing is that? And when she blinked, he had disappeared. So he, she understood that he was not a human being.
but it was someone from the other world who had come to test her. So as a consequence of this, she had these amazing children, Rebali Melech and Reb Zusha. So the topic is how to think like a Hasidic master. What did Rebali Melech and Reb Zusha think? They were very, very singular tzaddikim with specific types of personalities, especially singular is Reb Zusha, who was never actually a Rebbe Rebbe with a large community. He wasn't a rabbi of a synagogue or anything like that. He was just known as an extremely holy man. For many years, at the in his early years, he kept all of his knowledge completely secret and did not even allow his own brothers to know that he was learning Torah. He pretended to be a lazy ignoramus that I was just lying in the backyard in the sun of, in the sun or in the shade of the trees, enjoying nature. And he was actually hiding and learning Torah. And nobody knew this for many, many years. And his his brothers pitied him. They thought that, you know, he he's not a learner, he doesn't know how to learn. While he, there was another two brothers as well. So Rebzusha remained a hidden tzaddik for for years, even from his own family. At some point in his life, Reb Zusha was meditating on the words, Ani Hashem Elokecha Asher Mitzrayim. I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of Mitzrayim. And about the words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, on the Ten Commandments, as in this week's parsha, I am Hashem, your God. And as he was meditating on this, he said the word Ani, which means I, is used in the Torah to talk about Hashem. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am Hashem, your God. How could I call myself I when the only I that really exists is the creator? And he was meditating on this very deeply and he was saying, the Torah says, I am Hashem, your God. This same word, I, cannot be used for God, the creator, and for me, a very small, and <clears throat> insignificant as he looked at himself as insignificant human being, it can't be the same word. Therefore, Zusha decided, I will never call myself I again. They spoke Yiddish and in Yiddish, I is ich. So Rav Zusha decided, I will never think of myself as I again. And when I speak, I will never say again, ich, I. It's not I want, or I say, or I think, or I'm happy. Um, for someone as simple as myself, my first name is enough. And so, <clears throat> and so starting at that point, he would just say, Zusha is happy about this, or Zusha is hungry now, or whatever it was. Another special thing about the way of Rav Zusha's thinking was that he never wanted to need another human being. And so Rav Zusha would never turn to another human and ask for food, for instance. If he was happy, if he was hungry, he would just say, Hashem, Zusha is hungry, please give Zusha food. And that was the only way he had it. He never even asked his own wife for food when he was hungry. In his later years, Rav Zusha uh, would daven as he always did. He would pray for many hours each day. And when he was finished morning prayers after many hours, he was naturally hungry because he was human. And 
In his later years, one of his nephews was appointed to, to wait next to his door, listen, and when he hears that Rav Zusha has finished praying, bring him breakfast. And one day this nephew had to, had to go on an important trip for a day or two, and, but he knew he can't leave the Rav Zusha alone. Somebody has to feed him. Can't let Rav Zusha go hungry. So he knew another person from the community who he thought to be reliable. And he said to him, you know, I have to go out of town for a day or two, but my uncle, he needs to be fed. So every day I stand outside his door and when he's finished praying, I hear him say, master of the universe, Zusha is hungry. Please, can you feed Zusha? So when you hear that, that's the clue. That's when you bring the breakfast and you feed my uncle. Can you do that? Of course, said the man. The truth is, that this man did not believe in the greatness of Rav Zusha. And he thought, who does this guy think he is? Asking nothing from any other human. I'm going to show him. I'm going to show him he's not as great. I'm, going, I'm not going to bring him the food. And when he asks the creator of the universe for food and no food is coming, let's see if he does look for another human to bring him food or not. Let's see if he succumbs and asks for food from another person or not. So he made up this decision. Unknown to him, very early that morning when Rav Zusha was walking to immerse in the waters of the mikvah, um, he was passing through a very narrow space and there was a puddle there. And the people of the town had put a plank of wood, a narrow plank of wood over the puddle so that they could cross without getting their feet wet. And when Rav Zusha is going to the mikvah, there is another guy, a wealthy guy, who's coming from the other direction. Now, Rav Zusha was incredibly poor his entire life, even though according to the majority of opinions, his parents had actually been wealthy, at least in the end of their lives. By the, by, in both stories, at the end of their lives, the parents had been wealthy. So Rav Zusha looks like a pauper, and very early in the morning, just maybe at sunrise, he's going to the mikveh and he gets to the plank of wood that's over the puddle. And in the other direction comes a wealthy guy. And it's very early and it's kind of dark. So he doesn't really see who it is. He doesn't know who it is. The other guy was arrogant. And when he got to the plank of wood, he said, there is no room on this plank for both of us. And he pushed the holy Rev Zusha off of the plank and he fell in the puddle and got wet and dirty and muddy. And Rav Zusha said nothing because he was extremely humble. And he kept on going and he went to the mikvah and he went to Davin and so on. The wealthy guy was staying in an inn and he, he shared what had happened that morning with somebody else. And he said, yeah, you know, there was this pauper and we got to the, to the street where the plank is over the puddle and I pushed him on the floor. You should have seen what he looked like. He was such a mess of mud. And the person who's listening to this, he says there was a pauper at 5.30 a.m. Paupers don't go outside at 5.30 a.m. There's nobody to beg from. Oh my gosh, this must have been Rev Zusha. Do you realize what you did? You pushed the holy Rav Zusha and threw him in the puddle. Oh no, the man was fainting. He was horrified. What did I do? What did I do? What should I do now? 
So the other guy says, you better go ask for forgiveness because he's a very holy man and you don't want to mess with him. So, okay, but that's not enough. What else should they do? So the other guy told him, you know, bring him breakfast. You are a wealthy man. You have here a very luxurious breakfast. Pack it all up and take it to him. So here comes <clears throat> the wealthy man with a big package of uh, sumptuous breakfast and Reb Zusha's nephew is not there. The substitute is there who has decided he's not bringing food to Reb Zusha this morning. And let's see what happens. And at that point, Reb Zusha finishes davening and he says, master of the universe, Zusha is hungry. Please, can you give Zusha breakfast? And here comes the wealthy man and throws himself at his feet and says, Reb Zusha, please forgive me. I didn't know it was you when I pushed you into the mud puddle. And Reb Zusha says, of course I forgive you. And he says, and I brought you breakfast. And here, Reb Zusha got his breakfast just as it was supposed to be. So Reb Zusha never used the word I, and Reb Zusha never related to another human being as he related to his creator. He asked everything just straight from Hashem and not from any, not from any person ever. Zusha had an incredible, incredible love of Hashem. And he felt that because his love of Hashem was so overwhelming that he was not serving Hashem properly because we are supposed to serve Hashem with both love and awe. And his love of Hashem was so overwhelming that he felt, you know, I really need to increase my awe of Hashem. I, I don't have enough of the era. There is the Ahava, which is the love, and the Yira, which is the awe of Hashem. I need to increase my Yira, Hashem. What should I do? Well, I always ask Hashem to help me with everything. I will ask Hashem to help me with this too. And so Reb Zusha prayed, and he said, Master of the universe, I love you so much. I love you so, 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 so much. I love you so much that I don't know I don't think I'm serving you properly because we are supposed to serve you with love and fear, which is awe. And I don't have enough awe of you. Please, Hashem, help me have awe of you in my heart. A few minutes later, somebody came in the room. A few minutes later, somebody came in the room and found Reb Zusha hiding under a bed, shivering like a leaf in the wind. And Reb Zusha started crying, Hashem, I can't hold this tremendous awe of you. I can't, I can't live with this incredible fear. I know you are awesome, but I'm not able, to, I'm only human. I'm not able to withhold, to withhold this tremendous awe of you. So, Let's go back to the way things were at the beginning and I'll just serve you with all my love and a little bit of awe. The way that Reb Zusha thought about life helped him go through a very difficult life as if it was easy. One time, two men came to Reb Zusha's teacher, the Mesritcher Magid, and they said, Magid, holy Magid, we don't understand. It says, it says in the Jewish sources 
it says that a person in the, in the books of halacha, it says that a person must serve Hashem and thank Hashem and bless Hashem for the good and for the bad equally. And so there are blessings to say to Hashem for when there are good news. And there is a blessing that we should never have to say to thank Hashem for not good news. But how does the halacha, how does the Jewish law say that a person should thank Hashem equally? How is it possible to thank Hashem with a, an equal heart, with an equal feeling of gratitude for the not God as we thank Hashem for the good? Oh, the Maggid answered them, this is a question that you need to go and ask Rav Zusha. Rav Zusha is the right person to answer this question. And you will go to Anipoli and find Rav Zusha. So this man said it's worth the travel. If the, the Maggid said to ask Rav Zusha, that's what we need to do. And indeed, they traveled. And they asked, where is the house of Rav Zusha? And Rav Zusha's house was on the outskirts of the town where the shacks were. His house was a torn down shack with holes on the roof, broken windows. The wind and the cold penetrated in the winter. There wasn't enough money for firewood. The children were crying because they didn't have what they needed. Rav Zusha's wife was not the kindest wife and did not treat him so nicely. Rav Zusha had indeed a miserable life. So when these two guys come into the house, they see the house, they see the wife, they see the kids crying, they see everybody in rags. They said, oh, now we see why the maggot sent us here. If anybody has had bad news, Reb Zusha, somebody who's had a lot of bad news, he will really teach us how to serve Hashem, how to thank Hashem for the bad as we do for the good. So they said, Reb Zusha, the maggot sent us to you. Oh, wow, the maggot, amazing, amazing. You were by the maggot. Tell me about the maggot. What did he say? What did he say? What, what have you learned from him? I want to hear. And they said, the maggot sent us to you because we have a question. We want to know how is it possible to thank God with the same gratitude and the same heart full of joy for bad news as for good news? How is such a thing possible? Really? Says Rav Zusha, the maggot sent you to me? Are you sure he sent you to me, maybe he sent you to somebody else. I don't have an answer for your question. I've never had anything bad happen. Everything that Hashem gives me is only God. Which brings us to a similar story. It's a quite famous story. And I struggled with it my whole life. I struggled with the story for so many years to understand the depth of the story, and it was very disturbing. This is the story of Rav Zusha's tefillin. Rav Zusha had some very, very precious tefillin. They, had, they were very, very mehudar. That means they, you know, there are qualities, there are different qualities of tefillin and mezuzahs, and Rav Zusha had very, very holy, precious, very mehudar which means top, top, top quality to fill in. And they were worth a lot of money, but that was the only expensive thing he owned in the entire world. Well, Reb Zusha's wife had a niece who was orphaned and they had adopted her. And she always worried, how are they going to marry off this niece 
They need to give her a dowry and there is no money in the house. There's barely a crust of bread. How are, you, how are they going to marry the niece? So whenever the pangs of hunger and the suffering of poverty would bite, Rav Zusha's wife would say, will you sell your tefillin so we can have something? And he used to answer, how can I sell my holy tefillin? They are so precious and every day fulfill the midst of tefillin with a special tefillin, I can't sell them. So his wife would say, okay, but when my niece needs to get married and we need the money to marry her off, will you then sell the tefillin? And Rav Zusha would just put her off with different answers and say, when we come to that, we will see. Well, one year it came to Sukkot and everybody was building a sukkah and everybody was getting a lulav and an esrog. And there wasn't any money in Rav Zusha's house to buy an esrog that year. It came to the day before Sukkot and everybody's walking around with their lulav and their esrog except for Rav Zusha. And Rav Zusha felt so bad, he didn't have an esrog. So he thought for the next nine days, we are going to be celebrating Yom Tov. It's going to be Sukkot, Shemini Atzeresim, Chastora. All those days we don't put on tefillin. Tomorrow morning, I need to say the bracha and alul of an esrog, and I don't have one. Since I need to say the bracha and the alul of an esrog for the next seven days, and I don't need to put on tefillin for the next nine days, maybe I should sell my tefillin and buy alul of an esrog. And he did. And he came home with a very beautiful esrog and lulav, and he was so, so happy. His wife wasn't happy. She said, how did you buy that esrog? Did you sell your tefillin? And he had to answer the truth. Yes, he had sold his tefillin. The wife was furious. She said, when we were starving, when we were hungry, when we were suffering, you didn't sell your tefillin, and now you sold them to buy something that's gonna be good just for a week? She took the esrog and bid it. And I'm biting it. She rendered it puzzle, which means invalid. It was no longer, it was no longer good for making a bracha and happening with it. You can imagine how terribly heartbroken poor Rebzusha was at the time. What was going through his mind? Was he angry? Was he furious? Did he want to get divorced? Well, that's what would have gone through a regular mind, but not through the mind of a Hasidic master. Rav Zusha said like this, my precious tefillin I no longer have. My beautiful estrog I don't have either. Now the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination wants that Zusha should get angry. This I will not give in to. And Rav Zusha was quiet. He wiped away a tear and he went into Sukkot and into the joy of the holiday of Sukkot with a pure heart and with a joyous heart. And he completely refused to give in to anger. That is the mindset of a Hasidic master, where the main thing stays the main thing. And the main thing is to serve Hashem. So what's in the mind of a Hasidic master? I need to serve Hashem. 
I could serve Hashem with my tefillin, and that's great. I could serve Hashem with an essay, great. But being <laughs> Sorry, are we good? Should, should I? Oh, I see. Um, I'm going to try to... You guys muting yourselves? I'm trying to use the mute button, but it's not coming up. Okay. Yeah. Robinson? Okay. Do, do, we, do we know if the um, daughter ever got married? <clears throat> um, that's not told in the story, but I'm sure she did, and I'm sure they figured it out when the time came. <laughs> All right. Okay. There is a very, very unique thing about the way of thinking and the way of working of these two holy brothers, Rebbe Melech and Reb Zusha. And it is the way that they helped others to come back to Hashem. So nowadays we bring people to shul, we bring people to our houses, we give them books, we talk to them about Judaism. Rebbe Melech and Reb Zusha helped people who were very, very far from Hashem and who had committed terrible things and they helped them come back and do teshuva without talking to them. What did they do? There was two parts to it. One part is for years of their lives, Rebbe Melech and Rebbe Zusha lived in exile. And the exile had these two purposes. One purpose of the exile was to self-purification. When a person is living in the comforts of home, they could get complacent and get used to, you know, every day the same thing and I'm comfortable and everything is good. But there are certain tzaddikim that took upon themselves galut, galus, exile, and they just traveled from place to place and they lived of the charity that people would give them or, 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 or if they bought their own food, they did. But the discomfort of being constantly on the go and not being home was very, very difficult. And they use these as a way of elevating themselves spiritually. Not something recommended for regular people like us, but for great Hasidic masters, apparently it worked. The second purpose of this constant traveling for a long time was that as they went from town to town, they would meet people and help them do tshuva. As I said, without even talking to them. What did they do? One of them would start talking to the other and telling him, my brother, you really should repent. You really should do tshuva. Remember when you did this and this thing, that wasn't good. You need to come back to Hashem, you need to do tshuva. And the other one would respond, you are right, you are right. That was terrible that I did such and such. What were they saying? These great men had no sins. What were they saying? They knew with the spirit of prophecy, all the things that the other guys had done wrong. So they would come to a city, go into the marketplace, find people who needed to repent, who needed to do tshuva, and they would talk to each other as if it was them who had done those things. And so one of the brothers would tell the other, you should do tshuva for this and that and the other. 
And the other one would say, you're right, you're right. I did this and that and the other, and it was so wrong. I need to stop doing that. And what they were actually mentioning was the wrongdoings of the person next to them in the marketplace or in the community or in the show, wherever they went. The people had no idea. How could these people know what I have done? But they would hear about their own, their own wrongdoings and they would start crying. And then they would come over to Rebbe Limelech of Rezusha and said, I did that too. I did the same sin as you. How do you repent? How do you come back to Hashem? Please help me. And so Rebbe Limelech and Rebbe Zusha would go through all the people in the town. And then they, go, go, they would go to the next town and to the next town. And in this very, very unique and special way, they brought so many people back to Hashem. They helped so many people to do tshuva. One of the people that were assisted to do tshuva was somebody who lived in the same town as Reb Zusha. And Reb Zusha, as difficult as his life was in every way, was always incredibly happy. He always had a big smile on his face and he was always in the best of moods. Everything was so good to him and he was so, always so, so, so joyous. Rav Zusha happened to have a very, very special soul. His soul was from the world of Atsilus, the highest of the spiritual worlds. And being invested in a physical body in this world is not easy for such a soul. Nonetheless, because he was always focused on Hashem, and Hashem is the source of all life and the source of all happiness, Rav Zusha was always very happy. There was another very, very great Torah scholar in the same city as Reb Zusha, who was so annoyed at Reb Zusha's joy and happiness. He said, why, why is he always happy? He is poor and I am wealthy. He, he has a nasty wife and I have a good wife. His children are going in rags and my children are well-dressed. He lives in a shack and I live in a beautiful home. I have a lot of honor because I'm a great Torah scholar and he, you know, he thinks he's about himself that he's a nobody. Why is he always happy and I'm always miserable? That doesn't make any sense. One night, this Torah scholar who was miserable was lying in his bed and he couldn't sleep. He said, this doesn't make any sense and I can't make peace with it. And why does Rav Zusha always have this big smile on his face? I have to go find out. This is the middle of the night. The guy jumps, put his coat on top of his pajamas and puts on his boots. And he runs over to Ravzusha's house. In the middle of the night, he knocks on his door and wakes everybody up. And he says, Ravzusha, Ravzusha. Ravzusha comes to the door and says, oh, such a special, such an honor, such a Torah scholar coming to my house. How can I help you? The man says, Ravzusha, you have to help me. I, I can't live with this, but it's a secret. I don't want anybody to know that I came to your house. This is very private. Okay, says Ravzusha, how can I help you? Well, you see, I notice that you're always so happy, but I'm here in your house. It's a shack that will fall over any minute. There are holes in the walls, there is holes in the ceiling, the windows are broken, your clothes are tattered and your shoes are broken and you're always so happy. I live in the comforts of a beautiful home and I have all the clothes and I need. I'm so miserable. Why is this happening? Zusha, you have to tell me. 
Ah, you want to know why I'm happy and you are miserable? I'll tell you. He says, yesterday there was a wedding. A wealthy man, very wealthy man in our town made a wedding for his daughter. He made a beautiful wedding. Um, they served delicacies. The gifts were given to all the, to all the guests at the wedding. He gave money out. It was a lavish wedding. He says, yet you were miserable, but I was happy. What happened? When they came to invite you, in those days there were no invitations, a servant came to invite you. You asked the servant that you wanted to see the list of guests invited to the wedding. When you, look at the, when you looked at the list of guests, you saw that you are not the first guest in the list. So you were offended and you said, what a chutzpah. Why is this wealthy man not honoring me? Doesn't he know I am the Torah scholar in the town? He should have put me first in his wedding list. And so you decided to go late. And you said, I'll show them. I'm not going to show up on time for the chuppah. I'm going to go late. And so you actually showed up very late when you, late, when you got there so late, the chuppah was finished. And you were annoyed that you missed the chuppah, even though it was your decision. Then you came into the hall and you saw everybody seated and everybody's eating. And because this was a very lavish wedding, nobody missed it. Every person who was invited and some who weren't, everyone was there. There wasn't a place at the table for you. So you went over to the father of the bride. And when he noticed you, he said, oh, you came. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, let me see if I can find you a place. And he ran around trying to find a place at the table and trying to find you a chair. Finally, he managed to sit you down, but you know, it was kind of late into the wedding. And the waiter came and saw that you had arrived and tried to get you food. But so many people had come to this wedding that there was only some scraps of leftovers. You didn't get the best food. So you were so angry. You were angry that they didn't wait for you for the chuppah. You were angry that there was no chair for you. You were angry that the food wasn't good. And then when you were leaving, the father of the bride said, oh, I, I've been giving cash gifts to all my guests that came to my daughter's wedding. But so many people came. I am so sorry. I don't have anything left for you. And you said, never mind. Who cares? Mazel tov. And you wished the mazel tov with an angry face and you left. You were so miserable, you couldn't sleep the whole night. When the servant came to invite me, I was shocked. I, this, I said, me, I'm invited to this wealthy man's daughter's wedding? I'm shocked. Why am I invited? Who am I that I should be invited? Never mind that Reb Zusha was a very, very great tzaddik and a great Torah scholar than the second guy. But he said, who am I to be invited? Of course I will come. It's a mitzvah to, to bring joy to the chosen and kala, to the groom and the bride. Of course I will come. And so when the day came, I made sure to be there early because it is a mitzvah to bring joy and come and say mazel tov and sing and dance and rejoice. And the more people are present at the chuppah, the more the bride and groom will rejoice. So I was there early. When I got there early, the father of the bride asked me to be the rabbi in charge of doing the chuppah. I was so honored. I said, are you sure you want me to be in charge of doing the chuppah? Who am I to do this? But the father of the bride insisted that he wanted me to perform the ceremony. So I did. 
And then after the chupa, they placed me at the head table together with the family of the bride and groom. And I was served a lavish meal. When I was leaving, the father of the bride gave me a nice amount of money that I wasn't expecting at all. So I got home in a very good mood. See, says Rev Zusha to the miserable guy, you are always expecting better. And whenever you don't get what you're expecting, you are so unhappy. I expect nothing. I don't feel I deserve anything. So any good thing that comes my way makes me so happy because it's a free gift that I didn't expect. And so I'm always in a good mood. Talking about happy and in a good mood. There is a beautiful story that's quite funny too. Rebbe Limelech and Rav Zusha were on one of their travels. And this is about the mindset of a Hasidic master. <clears throat> so we've seen in the previous story, the mindset of Rav Zusha, expect nothing. So any good thing that comes your way is such a tremendous gift. And the next story will show us what to do when things don't go the way you want it. Rebeli Melech and Rav Zusha were traveling and as they usually were for years, and they met a group of paupers who was traveling asking for handouts. And the paupers said to them, do you wanna join us? We are traveling together. And Rebeli Melech and Rav Zusha said, sure, we'll join you. You're a group of Jews. We'll go with a group of Jews, we'll travel together. And they did. And as they are going, the police comes and says, one of you people, somebody in this group has stolen something that's been gone, that's gone missing very recently and you're under suspicion, all of you to jail. So now the entire group gets thrown into a little cell together with other people who were already in that cell who were all sorts of low lives all sorts of criminals. Now you have the holiest two men, Rabbi Melech and Razusha, in a stinking cell together with the low lives and the criminals. Okay, this is what Hashem put us. That's what's supposed to happen. Whatever Hashem does is for the good, right? We need to be happy. Then Razusha realizes that his brother is very sad. He says, my brother Elimelech, why are you sad? You know, it's a mitzvah to be happy. I know, says Rebeli Melech, but you know what? The sun is going down soon. It's time for the afternoon prayer, which we need to say before the sun goes down and we are not able to pray. You see, in this prison cell, there is a bucket that the, other, that, that the prisoners are using as a bathroom. And so the whole cell smells terribly in a place that smells bad, it's forbidden to pray. So you see why I'm sad. It's time for afternoon prayers and we're not allowed to pray. Oh, says Rav Zusha, and the contrary, my dear brother, it's a different mitzvah that we need to do right now. You see, it says in Shulchan Aruch, in the code of Jewish law, that 
when there is a place with a bad smell, you're not permitted to pray there. Whose will is this? This is the will of the creator. So just like it is a mitzvah to pray when it's time to pray and you are able to pray, so it is a mitzvah not to pray when you are not able to pray. So by not praying right now, we are doing the will of our creator. See, we're doing a mitzvah. Oh, says Rebbe Melech, I never thought about that. I never saw it that way. You are right, you are right. We are able to fulfill a mitzvah in Jewish law that we had never been able to fulfill before. And that is reason for celebration. So Rebbe Melech and Reb Zusha broke out in a very happy Hasidic tune and they started to dance in the middle of the cell. And the tune was so beautiful and their souls were so holy that all the prisoners who were in the cell got up and joined them. And before you know it, there is a large group of prisoners going around in a circle, singing and dancing with Reb Melech and Reb Zusha. The guard was very alarmed because this is not what's supposed to happen in, in a prison. In a prison, you're supposed to be miserable and crying. You're not supposed to be singing and dancing. So the guard comes to the door and starts yelling, hey, you prisoners, what's the reason for celebration? Nobody answers. So he opens the door, he gets in, he pulls out one of the guys out of the circle and says, tell me, why are they singing and dancing? The man says, I'll tell you the truth. I don't really know, but I have just a thought for you that just before these two Hasidic men started to sing and dance, just before they started to sing and dance, they were talking and to each other and they were pointing at the bucket. Ah, says the guard, it's the bucket that's making them happy. Then I will take it away and they will start the song and dance. So the guard came into the prison and took away the bathroom bucket and pulled it out of the jail. And guess what? Rebeli Melech and Reb Zusha were able to say the afternoon prayer just before the sun went down. So we have here two very great tzaddikim and two very different perspectives. And I would never say that one is greater than the other, but Reb Zusha was able to see a way to serve Hashem in absolutely everything. And he was able to pull his brother up and bring him to a state of joy, even in a moment of despair. Because the real joy in our lives, the real joy is only the joy in serving Hashem. And a Hasidic master is constantly in that state of the vacus, of cleaving to Hashem. And Hashem is the source of all joy. And therefore, somebody like Reb Zusha was able to be constantly in a joyous state because his joy was the cleaving to the source of joy, which is the creator. One more thought from Reb Zusha. 
there's a very human side, even though we're looking at Reb Zusha as this incredible genius and this incredible Hasidic master and somebody who had completely mastered all aspects of his life. But there is a story that gives us a huge window and a huge key and also shows the human side of Reb Zusha. As you know, Reb Zusha was extremely humble, so humble that he wouldn't even say the word I. And he wanted to serve Hashem with a pure heart. So for many years, he managed to hide that he was a Torah sage. His teacher, the Mesritcher Magid, told the other students, the other disciples, be very careful with Zusha, always respect him. Be very careful never to be disrespectful to Rev Zusha. Because even though he appears to be an ignoramus, he's a very, very, very great sage. But eventually, years later, it was discovered that he was a tzaddik and a great sage. So one day, Reb Zusha is the chazan. He's the sheliach tzibur. He goes to the front of the shul, and he is davening as the chazan. He's praying as the leader. And as he's praying, he starts to think, I am praying from the depths of my heart. I am praying to my creator. I am doing it with sincerity, but how do I know that my prayer is absolutely sincere and I have no ulterior motives? Maybe, maybe as I'm praying out loud for, for everyone to hear me, maybe there is a, a Shemitz Gaiva, a little bit of arrogance, maybe in my heart, maybe for a moment I'm thinking, Look, everyone's looking at me. Everybody's listening to me. And they are admiring my prayers. What if, what if I'm thinking deep in my heart, what if in deep in my heart, there is a feeling of arrogance that's spoiling all my praying? What do I do with that? How do I know that, I'm, that I could be really only connected to Hashem and not thinking about others, other humans? So he says, I know, I will use my imagination. I will use my imagination. In my imagination, all the people in the synagogue now are turning into trees. So I will imagine that instead of the synagogue, I am in the forest. And I will imagine that every person present here is a tree, a beautiful tree. But trees are not humans. So if I'm praying nicely, I'm not impressing anybody. And therefore now I can imagine myself being in the forest surrounded by trees and pray with com in a completely relaxed way with complete earnest earnestness and just thinking about Hashem, not worrying about my arrogance, and not worrying about what others are thinking of me. They are just trees. And then one time the opposite happened. Reb Zusha was in a forest surrounded by trees and it became dark and he was traveling alone. And the human part of Reb Zusha came afloat and he thought, this forest is very dark. It's very shady. And it's very scary. 
What if there are wild animals or spirits or who knows what in this forest? And then he said, Zusha, what are you thinking? You know that Einod Milvado, you know that there is none other but Hashem. Nothing exists except for Hashem. There is no fear to be had. And then he responded to himself, yes, Zusha knows that nothing exists except for Hashem. But nonetheless, there is a part of Zusha that still feels fear. And then he said, I know what I will do. I will imagine that all these trees are my friends, are the guys that come to shul with me to pray. I will imagine that each tree is one of the men in my shul and therefore I will not be afraid. And Zusha used his imagination to serve Hashem with complete sincerity, completely humbly. And Zusha used his imagination to be in the forest and have no fear. I think that this is a very powerful way to use your mind to think like a very special and very unique Hasidic master is to imagine our surroundings in a way that it only impacts us in a positive way. If you are concerned about people thinking about you or not thinking about you, whatever it is, you can imagine that these are different people or that they are trees or that they are birds or whatever you want to imagine. If you are afraid, imagine that the object of your fear is something else. And always, always see in your mind the presence of Hashem. So I had handouts, but you guys are at home. So Rabbi Solish is going to email it to you. And this handout is called 15 Facts About Revzusha of Anipoli, and it's from Chabad.org. And I really, really like it. So I think you're going to get it in, um, you're going to get it in an email. One of the powerful teachings of, um, of Reb Zusha is about the word teshuva. His teacher, his Rebbe, the Mezritcher Magid, taught about teshuva, that teshuva is shuva Israel ad Hashem elokecha. There, there is a verse that says, return Israel until Hashem your God. And he taught that return Israel Jewish people until Hashem becomes your God, until Avaya becomes Elokecha, until the name of Hashem, which is Yud Kevavke, that transcends all worlds, becomes Elokecha, becomes the God that creates the nature in the world and is close to you and is, you know, like you really, your personal God. And Rav Zucha says, that's for great people, not for a small person like me. And therefore, he took the letters, the five letters of the word teshuva, tav, shin, vav, base, and hey, and used each word for another pasuk, for another verse of Torah or Tehillim, and so on. And he said, those are the five keys to doing teshuva. Look for that in your email.
Now, we would be amiss if we didn't learn uh, something about Tu Bishvat, because today was Tu Bishvat, and we are now in the evening following Tu Bishvat. And I have here um, the Imre Noam, that's a, a book of teachings by uh, um, Rabbi Elimelech Melizinsk, and he has teachings about Tubishvat. Um, it starts with something that we learned here at, um, at the Intown Academy. We learned last year in previous classes, and it starts with that, that concept, which you are already familiar with from a previous class. Rebeli Melech says, you all know that for every mitzvah that we do, an angel is created. It's created. These are our defending angels who are to, there to protect us, who show up when we are judged after 120 years. Those are our defending angels, the angels that we made with our mitzvahs, with our good deeds. And he says, we know that this, when we do a mitzvah, it creates an yichud. Remember last week when we learned about the Baal Shem Tov, we said the Baal Shem Tov used to do yichudim. He would bring together different names of Hashem. So we learned that the, learn, the name is spelled Yud K Vav K, uh, K for the letter Hey. That's the name Havaye that comes after Baruch Atah in Abracha. And we learned that even though we spell it that way, we pronounce it Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, from the word Adon, which means master. So we learned that the Baal Shem Tov used to do Yehudim, and we had a meditation where we put the two together. So the, the names Yud, Kei, Vav, Kei, and Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, when you add up the numerical value, the gematria of those two names, in other words, when you add up all of those eight letters, the two names together, the numerical value is 91. And that is the name numerical value as the word malach, which means angel. So when we are doing a mitzvah, we are created this yichud, this joining and oneness of these two divine names, and we are creating an angel. And you remember that the more kavana, the more intention that we put in the doing of the mitzvah or the saying of the bracha, the stronger, healthier, and more beautiful the angel of that mitzvah becomes. Now, Rebbe Melech of Lizins teaches, it is very, very important that when we are in trouble, that when we need help, that when we are turning to somebody for help, it should not be to the angels. It should not be to, certainly not to any forces of nature, but it should not even be to the holy angels. When we are in need of help, we need to go exclusively to Hashem, the creator and master and manager of the universe. We cry out to him, and only to him. And where do we see this in Tu Bishvat? There is a pasuk in Tehillim that says, just give me a second. I have it in my phone and I need to get it because in the book here, it's only giving me half and it doesn't wanna come. I 
uh, it's chapter 73 of Tehillim, and it's the last verse in chapter 73, and I found it on my phone, and it says, Ba'ani kirbas elokim litov, and for me, myself, closeness to God is good for me. Shati Hashem elokim machsi, I have put my, my um, refuge in Hashem elokim, to relate, to tell about all your deeds, all the deeds of Hashem. Now, if you look this up, that is Psalms, Tehillim, chapter 73, the last verse, the name of God is spelled both ways, Hashem and Elohim, Hashem, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, and Yud, Kevab, okay? But when you have those two names next to each other, the name Yud Kevavke is punctuated as the name Elohim. So instead of saying Adon Adon twice, you will say Hashem Elohim. If this is confusing, you can ask me again later. So those two words, Hashem Elohim, are making the value of 91. That's that special combination. And that Yichud creates the angel of our mitzvah. So I put my trust in Hashem Elohim. Lesaper kol mal achosecha. Lesaper means to tell, to relate, like to tell a story. But lesaper says, Rebeli Melech of Lizinsk, also comes from the word sapir, which is sapphire. And so lesaper kol mal achosecha could be translated as to tell or relate all the great works of God. Or it could also be translated as to make all the angels more luminous, more beautiful and more luminous. So when we are doing the mitzvahs with proper kavanah, with proper intention, we are making all of our angels like, like sapphire, more beautiful, more shiny, more glorious, and more luminous. But points out Rebeli Melech of Lizinsk, Tu Vishvat always falls after Parsha's Beshalach. You know, if you went to Shul or if you learn the Parsha every week, and please do, you know that Parsha's Beshalach was last week's Parsha. That's the, the Parsha in which the Jewish people cross the Red Sea and sing the song of praise to Hashem with Moshe and the women sing it with Miriam. So first comes every year, first comes Parsha's Beshalach in which we relate the story of crossing the sea and we sing the song of praise to Hashem. And then comes Tu Bishvat, which is the holiday of the trees. Now, this is a little bit Kabbalistic, so please bear with me. It might be a, a drop challenging. The word tree is Ilan. Tu Bishvat is Chag La Ilanot. Oz Rosh Hashanah La Ilanot. It's Rosh Hashanah for the trees. There are two words for tree. There is Etz, as in Bore Priya Etz, is the word that means tree, and Ilan also means tree. The word Ilan has the same numerical value as Malach, which means tree and angel. Because the angels receive uh, their power from a spiritual source, they, everything receives their power from a, from a spiritual source. Um, the combination of these two names, Yud Kevavke and Aleph Dalet Nun Yud, comes to that number of 91, which gives life force to the angel and to the trees. 
Now, in order that we should not think that it is possible or recommended to ask for assistance from the angels and pray to the angels, every year comes the crossing of the Yamsuf before Tu Bishvat that relates to the angels and the trees. Because when we cross the sea, the level of divine revelation was so intense that even the person who was on the lowest spiritual level, like a maidservant, saw a divine revelation where it became absolutely evident and completely obvious that only God creates and only God has the ability to help us. And so at that moment, they saw that it's ridiculous to ask for assistance from someone who's not God, even an angel. And so we have this before Tu Bishvat to see that even if you think that you would relate to another force of nature, like a tree or an angel, that no, you saw at the parting of the Yamsuf, at the parting of the sea, you saw even the smallest, most lowly a person at the lowest spiritual level saw with absolute certainty that Hashem is the only force, is the only creator, and is the only one who can truly help us. As usual, I've gone over time. So um, I would like to conclude. Um, is there anybody who would like to do a meditation or should we finish here? Meditation. Meditation, yes. Okay, so if you want to do a meditation, we'll do it a little bit quickly because it's already 9.21. So sit comfortably, turn off your devices, not your computer though. <laughs> turn, put your phones on airplane mode. Sit back, start your deep breath. back all the way to the back of your chair feet on the ground or or on your couch hands on your lap another deep breath Please put yourselves on mute, guys. Everybody, make sure that you're on mute because I can't find the mute button and this computer is different than mine. Please make sure you are on mute. Oh, no, that's my mute button, not yours. Okay. Keep on the deep breath. As you slow your breath, you start to feel so completely relaxed. You see the letters of Hashem's name descending from on high, they are drawn to you and you are drawn to them. 
the leather yield descends and comes within the cavity of your head. Your head and face and neck become very relaxed and you see the glory of the leather yod and its healing warm light within your head. Now you focus on the leather hay, the first hay of Hashem's name. It's coming down from above and fuses with you The horizontal line at the top is going from your left to your right shoulder. The vertical lower line goes all the way down your right arm. And the second vertical line, the not connected one, is within your left arm. You now see the leather vav of Hashem's name. It's coming down from above, entering your being. And it's coming into your trunk. The leather vav goes from your neck down your spine. As it's a long leather. And its light fills up all of your body with a warm, loving, healing light. You now visualize the second leather hay it comes down into you. The top horizontal bar is going across your hips the longer vertical line is going across your right leg. The shorter vertical line is placed on your left leg. The name of Hashem in you are merged. You feel happy, relaxed, completely embraced and completely loved and completely accepted by Hashem who loves us like a parent loves their only child. You realize that all joy comes from Hashem and we should strive for a joyful light in constant devacus, constant cleaving to the source of all light, which is Hashem. The joy and light of Hashem is completely filling your being. You are full and overflowing with the love and light and joy of Hashem. 
our only desire is to constantly merge with Hashem by doing what makes Hashem happy. And we know that we also can be like the Hasidic masters, keeping our mind focused and the good and loving everyone and emerging with Hashem's will. With another deep breath, we internalize all that we have heard today. With another deep breath, we find a way to apply something in this knowledge to our day-to-day -day life. One more deep breath. And we will now come back slowly to our present location. At the count of four. One, two, you can start moving. Three, you can start opening your eyes. And four, completely energized, re rejuvenated, filled up with joy and connected to Hashem. Okay, guys, have a great week. If you have any questions, you can email me at nomifree at gmail.com. Next week's topic will be, I know that last week I said today's topic was going to be Rav Elimelech, Rav Zusha, and the Bardichva Rav, um, Rav Levitzchuk of Bardichva, but then I realized he was putting too much in and I didn't even get to cover everything I had about Rav Elimelech and Rav Zusha. So we're going to have the Bardichva next week together with his Mechutan, with his relative, the, the, the author of the Tanya. Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, also known as the Baal Hatanya. He and the Bardichova were Mechutanim. Their children married each other. So we'll put the two of them together in one class with Hashem's help and have a great week.